the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report number 88, December 1972. A persistent myth cherished by humanistic man is to locate sin and the responsibility for it not in himself, but in his environment and in the ruling class. In every era, men have blamed their griefs and sins on the existing establishment or power structure. To cite a few examples, during the, quote, medieval, unquote, era, men found it easy to see evil as the monopoly of rapacious churchmen, and the myth of the greedy, lustful priest was fostered. True, some priests were evil, but to this day we hear much about the sins of the priest and too little about the sins of the people. No class has a monopoly on sin or virtue. There were many sensual priests, but only rarely are we told of the many women whose delight in game was to seduce sexually innocent and dedicated priests. At a later date, we hear of the debauched royalty and nobility, who bled a people of their meager means and dishonored their wives and daughters. Again, it must be pointed out that the royalty and nobility were freely robbed by those under them, and women thrust themselves at them as a means to personal advancement. In the last century, when a young king went to a spa, the place was crowded by mothers and daughters anxious to advance themselves as royal mistresses. The bourgeois, also on attaining power, became the targets of the same mythical thinking. The brutal factory owners seduced working girls and cast them aside, according to the myth. Certainly this happened, but as often as not, every attempt was made to gain advancement by seducing the factory owner or his sons. The same was true of slavery. Slaves as often seduced and exploited their owners as the owners their slaves. Vice and virtue have never been the monopoly of a class, and it is only mythological thinking that makes it so. In fact, a sure road to disintegration and decline is for a ruling class to become sufficiently immoral to feed the myth with a semblance of confirmation and thereby inflame reaction. The myth of the monopoly of evil by the power structure is best promoted when the intellectuals and artists of a society become hostile to the rulers and then promote hostility in their culture. Intellectuals and artists have been essentially a subsidized group in most societies. At first, the clergy supported them, and there are biblical grounds for a close tie between the church and the arts. However, As both intellectual and artists saw themselves as the true elite of a society, 
they then became of necessity the enemy of their rival, the current ruling class. Today, it is increasingly the state that subsidizes them, so that every, quote, establishment, unquote, is becoming the enemy of its intellectuals. In the modern era, the monarchy and nobility were both excellent patrons and easy targets. The evil of monarchy was not that its taxation was so great, but that its rule was so selectively restrictive. The monarchs taxed far less than modern democracies do, and they generally ruled much less restrictively. Their failing was that their governments were restrictive of production and trade, and economic progress was stifled thereby. The decline of monarchy was essentially an internal decline. Courts became no longer a place of justice, in example the nation's Supreme Court, but a place of social events. Louis XIV created the first, quote, Pentagon, unquote, and bureaucracy of power, while turning his palace into a pleasure area to seduce the nobility away from power. Middle-class men were used to rule while Louis XIV gave the forms of power to the nobility. The old upper class was turned into a showpiece, irrelevant progressively to the nation and to its power. Even more serious, royalty had begun to commit suicide by both unwise unions for political purposes and excessive inbreeding. To cite examples from England, there was a, quote, taint of madness, unquote, in the Tudors, which showed up in Henry VII and Henry VIII. Paul Murray Kendall, Richard III, page 186, New York, W.W. W. Norton, 1955. Even the respectful biographer of Mary, Queen of Scots, admits to the weaknesses inherited by that queen. Antonia Fraser, Mary, Queen of Scots, page 12, New York, Delacorte Press, 1970. Catherine of Aragon brought a questionable heredity to her union with Henry VIII, and their child was Mary. Some of these and others were rulers of faith and dedication, but at critical points their judgment was faulty. George III and George IV suffered the consequences of excessive inbreeding, and porphyria as well as leukemia became, quote, royal, unquote, diseases. Of Princess Alexandra of Bavaria in the 19th century, it was unhappily true that her, quote, whole life was clouded and confused by an unshakable conviction that she had once swallowed a grand piano made of glass, unquote. King Ludwig II of Bavaria had impaired judgment, which led to disaster, and his brother Otto was pronounced, quote, incurably insane, unquote. Wilford Blunt, the Dream King, Ludwig II of Bavaria, pages 16 and 159, New York, Viking Press, 1970. The monarchs and nobility made themselves irrelevant to their times by their pursuit of pleasure. Being themselves empty, they came to see life as empty. Voltaire, himself, both a critic and very much a part of this culture, said, quote, Trifle with life, that is all it is good for, unquote. Pierre Schneider, The World of Watteau, 1684 through 1721, page 60, New York, Time, 1967. Long before the monarchs and the nobility either disappeared or were relegated to ceremonial functions, 
in Western Europe, effective power had been assumed by the middle class. Commerce and industry came to the forefront, and the new power structure began to remake Western civilization rapidly and efficiently. Unfortunately, however, the new ruling class began to imitate the old ruling class. It became fashionable for artists, intellectuals, and businessmen to imitate the vices of monarchs of an early era, or the surviving ones. Had women like Madame Pompadour ruled kings once? The new elite made courtesans into rulers and their salons into palaces and places of judgment. By the 1860s, Theophile Gantier wrote, quote, The religion of money is today the only one which has no unbelievers. Unquote. The courtesans of Europe rose to great power and wealth. According to Richardson, quote, Sexual license had always been a privilege of the aristocracy, an element in their education, but now it was claimed by the middle classes who had risen to wealth and power. Unquote. Rather, the middle class equated the degeneracy of royalty as the mark of its power, and it imitated those same vices with relish. The courtesans were made rich and famous because they, quote, symbolized frivolity and irresponsibility, unquote. Joanna Richardson, The Courtesans, page 2, 221 and 230, London, Wyden, Field and Nicholson, 1967. Meanwhile, the same bitterness men had once felt for the royalty they felt now for the middle class and for the intellectuals and artists. Marie Antoinette had earlier been blamed even for bad weather. The new power structure was now the target of like unreasoning hatred. It first became vocal after the French Revolution when it was only partially expressed in the revolutionary movements of 1848. The moral scandals of industrialists and the poverty of the working class were widely discussed. Moreover, the intellectuals and artists were also debauching the wives and daughters of the citizenry. As Tom Prideau observed, quote, An outbreak of personal scandals, among them a jealous husband's discovery of his spouse in a hideaway with Victor Hugo, convinced the man in the street that the morals of the dominant bourgeois were no better than those of the decadent aristocrats they had supplanted. Unquote. T. Prideaux, The World of Delacroix, seventeen ninety eight through eighteen sixty three, page one sixty six, New York Time, nineteen sixty six. The poor, downtrodden people and the torchbearers, the intellectuals favoring socialist revolutions, became now the new bearers of innocence, and all other classes were seen as evil exploiters. Everything was done to develop and perpetuate this myth and to suppress evidence to the contrary. Thus, on June 23, 1851, Helen de Muth, the Karl Marx family servant, gave birth to a son. Marx had either seduced or raped her, and Payne feels the slim evidence suggests that, quote, it was rape rather than seduction, unquote. Robert Payne, Marx, page 260, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1968. The Communists, having made much of the bloated capitalist ravishing working girls, worked to suppress the fact that their great theoretician is the best example of this kind of exploitation, as have been most other Communists. Peter Stafford, in Sexual Behavior in the Communist World, 
has made it clear that communists are ready to exploit people as any other class and, because of their totalitarian powers and goals, more able to do so than any class heretofore. Moreover, the lives of intellectuals and artists have been no more reassuring that they represent any power to reform society, let alone themselves. In recent years, therefore, the position of the self-styled intellectual and artist has been to favor perpetual opposition and perpetual revolution. Having been burned by favoring various alternatives to the church, from monarchy through the bourgeois, the working class, the communist movement, and the new left, which turned on its teachers. The intellectuals favor now the, quote, adversary role, unquote. Their own political action has revealed their failings too well. If anyone adopts a position defensive of a faith or tradition, he is called a, quote, counter-intellectual, unquote, and some who are described this way include Edmund Burke, Alex de Tocqueville, August Comte, Harold Laswell, George Orwell, Raymond Aron, Eric Hoffer, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, Daniel Mahanan, Irving Kristol, and others. Peter Steinfels, quote, the counter-intellectuals, unquote, in New American Review, number 14, pages 115 through 138, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1972. The intellectual stance now is a radical cynicism and relativism, quote, the adversary role, unquote, but every critique is in terms of a criterion, and the criterion of the intellectuals is a deep faith in the reason of autonomous intellectual man. The absence of a social program is, however, a major retreat from responsibility. Whatever is offered is done in the spirit of relativism and cynicism. Not surprisingly, the word to intellectuals in Washington politics from their universities has been a demand to, quote, come home, unquote, and be again the critic on the sidelines. The humanistic myth is playing out. Sin has become a chronic factor on the political scene as elsewhere, and no power structure has been immune to it. No class or power structure has had a monopoly on virtue or on sin. And sin has become a dark cloud on the humanist horizon, a forerunner of a destroying storm. Reinhold Niebuhr, to whom sin was a sociological reality, and grace, a religious myth, taught the intellectuals well. The lesson has come home to them in varying degrees. Man's efforts to reconstruct society are always limited, frustrated, and defeated by the fact of sin. Men like Robert Ardrey have since been documenting man's rapacious and quarrelsome nature. The modern world was fashioned by thinkers whose faith came into focus in Rousseau, now it is kicking against the pricks of a self-knowledge which smacks more of Calvin's doctrine of man. In fact, whether it be Orwell, Golding, or any other contemporary writer, the emphasis on man's depravity in some respects goes beyond Calvin's imagination. The emphasis on sin, evil, and depravity is all around us. Pornography, once a vice of a degenerate and declining royalty and nobility, is now mass-produced for mass consumption. The world of humanism is everywhere in decay, and the humanists themselves acknowledge that this age is in serious trouble. Leslie Fieldler has described this mood as, quote, 
waiting for the end, unquote. See report number 87. The alternative to waiting for the end to come is to wait on God's grace, and this too many refuse to do. Milton's Satan held that it was better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, and this is the mood of many. The end, however, does not come, only progressive slavery. The alternative is the freedom of grace. It means a distrust of man and of man's agencies. It means a strict limitation of power for man and for church, state, school, and all other institutions. It means that instead of submitting to man-made controls, man submits to divine controls, the sovereign sway of God's law in every area of life. Trusting God requires a distrust of man, man as monarch, industrialist, worker, intellectual, and clergyman. To be truly dependent on God, we must be independent of man, except and in so far as God, within very narrow limits, requires it in His Word. Sin is not abolished by the abolition of monarchy, democracy, or oligarchy, nor by abolishing the state, the church, or anything else. The problem is in man, and the answer is in God. The age of the state has seen the answer in a reformed state, a state purged of an evil, oppressing class, but humanism is running out of classes to abolish. Isaiah, in speaking to the humanist of his day who had debauched the country and its money, said, quote, Cease depending on man whose breath is in his nostrils, for at what should he be valued? Unquote. Isaiah 2.22 This means us, first of all. The world is too full of people like us, quote, good people, unquote, who trust in our own righteousness too often more than we trust in God. No state can supply to its people that character which the people lack. The need for grace begins with every one of us. Calcedon Report, number 89, January 1973. Desperate men take desperate measures. Very often the most bitter and costly battles of a war are fought when the end is in sight, and the losing side is aware of its impending defeat. Then men often take reckless and extreme measures, gambling on a breakthrough to victory. The end of an era sees a similar desperation. Men work intensely and savagely to destroy everything in sight, hating the culture which had promised so much and delivered so little according to their judgment. Similarly, men who value the good in the dying culture fight with intense zeal to preserve it at all costs. There is a polarization of ideas and issues and an intensification of ideas. As a result, in these last days of the age of the state, a humanistic culture in which the state has replaced the church as the key institution and has presented itself as man's savior. There is a fanatical will to believe in man. Not surprisingly, in the 1972 U.S. presidential election, there was on all sides an intense populism in evidence. Eric F. Goldman saw this as the triumph of populism. Eric F. Goldman, quote, just plain folks, unquote. In American Heritage, June 1972, volume 23, number 4, pages 4 through 8, 90F. It could also be called its last stand before its collapse into disaster. 
Every U.S. political party of 1972 was in varying degrees populist. John Lindsay, George McGovern, George Wallace, Richard M. Nixon, Frank Rizzo, John D. Rockefeller IV, and many, many others made a populist appeal. Goldman reports that McGovern, in the primary, denounced Lindsay as a, quote, Park Avenue populist, unquote, an example, not the real thing. And Lindsay denounced Wallace as a, quote, phony populist, unquote, and so on. The term, quote, populist, unquote, comes from the old People's Party of the last century, according to Goldman. Quote, the heart of populism has been a glorification of the people, defined in a way that permitted them to also be called ordinary folks or the average man, unquote. A study of the old people's party platforms reveals the strong faith that salvation for society means a people's state, in which the state controls, quote, big business, unquote, agriculture, and also issues money in quantities sufficient to supply the needs of the people. The state is seen as the controlling power to aid the working man. It has a duty to maintain full employment with public works projects and the state should own and control the railroads and most public utilities. The populist movement has infiltrated into and captured the thinking of all political parties. Its triumph was correctly predicted in 1901 by the Harper's Encyclopedia of United States History. It has triumphed indeed, but it has also gone to seed. The reform measures advocated in the 1890s are now law, and instead of furthering the power and freedom of the, quote, common man, unquote, or, quote, the people, unquote, they have steadily whittled away at his liberties. Moreover, instead of seeing the evil in the status repressions they advocated, the populists, unwilling to see the sin of the people, have insisted instead that the problem is not sin. The people are good at heart, only misled. The populists hold. But conspiracy... The conspirators have robbed them, the innocent and pure people, of their victory. This is the thesis of the new leftist underground press and some conservatives. Let us examine the triumph of Hitler and National Socialism in Germany in terms of this thesis. Supposedly, the people were betrayed by the wealthy capitalists, who ostensibly financed Hitler's rise to power. Of course, the common people who followed Hitler did so because they had been supposedly betrayed in 1918 by the Jews and others. Did the German industrialists finance Hitler? In reality, the attitude of German industrialists was pragmatic. According to Pritchard, quote, most industrialists preferred pragmatism to ideological doctrine, unquote. The same pragmatic self-interest marked the military and the great estate owners. Quote, the contributions of German industry to the Nazi party equaled only a small percentage of the amount they gave to Hitler's opponents until he became chancellor. There is no basis for the fiction that the industrial cartels financed Hitler's way to power. Unquote. The Nazis were chronically short of funds until they took power. The majority of the people high and low, were motivated by pragmatic self-interest and their political voice was diffused, whereas the Nazi voice was organized and united. R. John Pritchard, Reichstag Fire, 
Ashes of Democracy, New York, Ballantine, 1972. Some German industrialists did give to Hitler as part of a policy of giving to all major parties as a matter of political pragmatism. The same is true in the U.S. and elsewhere. Play safe and contribute to all possible winners. One reporter has remarked that sometimes the same faces appear at a hundred-dollar-a-plate dinners for rival candidates. Both industrialists and workers were pragmatic. But why are the industrialists alone made the scapegoats and conspirators? The reason is that the workers are the innocent and heroic victims in this myth, and politicians, industrialists, churchmen, large landowners, and others are the oppressors by definition. Every gnat must be strained and every camel swallowed in order to sustain the thesis that the innocent people were misled and betrayed. The problem is instead sin. Humanism in all its forms, from monarchism to democracy, has refused to admit this fact. They have readily seen the moat in another person's eye and failed to admit the moat in their own. Thomas Babington Macaulay had some telling comments to make on the future of the United States. Writing in a letter of May 23, 1857, Macaulay said, The day will come when in the state of New York a multitude of people, none of whom has had more than half a breakfast or expects to have more than half a dinner, will choose a legislature. Is it possible to doubt what sort of a legislature will be chosen? On one side is a statesman preaching patience, respect for vested rights, strict observance of public faith, On the other is a demagogue ranting about the tyranny of capitalists and usurers and asking why anybody should be permitted to drink champagne and ride in a carriage while thousands of honest folks are in want of necessaries. Which of the two candidates is likely to be preferred by a working man who hears his children cry for more bread? I seriously apprehend that you, Americans, will in some such season of adversity as I have described, do things which will prevent prosperity from returning, that you will act like people who should, in a year of scarcity, devour all the seed corn, and thus make the next a year not of scarcity, but of absolute famine. There will be, I fear, spoliation. The spoliation will increase the distress. The distress will produce fresh spoliation. There is nothing to stop you. Your constitution is all sail and no anchor. As I said before, when a society has entered on this downward progress, either civilization or liberty must perish. Either some Caesar or Napoleon will seize the reins of government with a strong hand, or your republic will be as fearfully plundered and laid waste by barbarians in the 20th century as the Roman Empire was in the 5th with this difference, that the Huns and Vandals who ravaged the Roman Empire came from without, and that your Huns and Vandals will have been engendered within your own country by your own institutions. G. Otto Trevelan, The Life and Letters of Lord Macaulay, Volume 2, page 409F, New York, Harper, 1875. What Macaulay failed to see was that the leaven of humanism worked to the same end in the monarchies 
autocracies, and principalities of Europe as in America, and often more rapidly. Faith in man and the Savior's state, quote, the people's state, unquote, leads to the same goal everywhere, to the destruction of freedom, the rise of statism, and the progressive enslavement of man. The problem for Macaulay was the common man. The problem for the populist then and now was and is the evil big people who oppress the little people. Both are right about each other. Neither are to be trusted because man is a sinner. Man is free to the proportion that he sees himself as the problem and takes steps to remedy himself by the grace of God. Man is doomed to slavery if he insists on projecting the sin of man onto a particular class or group of men as though the world's evils come from a special group rather than a general condition of sin and apostasy. In 1791, Edmund Burke observed, quote, Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there is without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Unquote. The usually astute Macaulay was wrong. It has not been the Constitution and the, quote, institutions, unquote, of the United States which have been at fault, whatever their imperfections, but the people of the United States, as well as the peoples of Europe and the world over. The problem is man. He is a sinner who will not admit to the nature of his problem nor recognize his remedy. The result is a desperation of action a readiness to try every extreme measure to demonstrate that sinful man can build a good society if only he has time and power enough to do so. Has the state failed in some measure aimed at changing man and society? It will try a more extreme measure next. The results are always assured failure and less freedom. Quote, but we must believe in man, unquote. Someone insisted to me after a lecture, by man, he meant statist man, working with the sovereign power in and through the state to remake man and society. Why must we believe in man, I objected. Quote, because there is nothing else to believe in, unquote. That was a few years ago, a very short time ago. Now, more often, I encounter another attitude. Quote, there is nothing to believe in, unquote. The false gods go, and they leave behind them shattered youth and a divided culture. The will to destroy everything is very great in these bitter and disillusioned youth. The children of the age of the state are increasingly the self-appointed gravediggers of the state, determined to bury the present order and bitter with hatred against it. The will to rebuild is basic to those who see sin as the problem, and God in His law word as the answer. They are concerned with rebuilding in their own lives to exercise dominion over themselves and the earth, and they are thus the forerunners of reconstruction in every realm. To them all things are possible under God, 
Thus, William Carey and his associates were not discouraged by the bleak prospects of missionary work in India, declaring almost two centuries ago, quote, He who raised the Scottish and brutalized Britons to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus can raise these slaves of superstition, purify their hearts by faith, and make them worshipers of the one God in spirit and in truth. The promises are fully sufficient to remove our doubts and make us anticipate that not very distant period when he will famish all the gods of India and cause these very idolaters to cast their idols to the moles and to the bats and renounce forever the work of their own hands. Unquote. More such men are needed now in every sphere of endeavor who will, under God, work to further his kingdom, establish his law order, and bring all things under the dominion of man as God's vicegerent. The basic problem is in man, not in his environment. Man's freedom begins within, and man's dominion begins within. We are not in the twilight of man and his history, but rather closer to the dawn. This is still God's world. He has not abdicated. Have you? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Oh,
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.